Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, come on in, make yourself comfortable. It's Politics on the Couch, and I'm Raphael Baer. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patience. We haven't produced an episode for a while, I'm sorry about that, but I hope this one will have been worth the wait. If you're a new listener, welcome. The purpose of this podcast is to get beyond the noisy, quarrelsome frenzy of day-to-day politics and, as calmly as we can, understand some of the deeper psychological processes at work. Well, that's one point. The other one is that I get to put questions to clever people. They aren't all psychologists. In fact, the only consistent pattern is that they know a lot more than me about things I wish I knew about. People like Satnam Sankera, journalist, author, and most important for our purposes, analyst of our country's complex and contested relationship with its imperial past. Satnam's most recent book is Empireland, How Imperialism Shaped Modern Britain. It's a subject that seemed to lie dormant in the collective psyche for a long time and then recently erupted into current politics. The object of partisan debates and cultural skirmishes. It lurks in the background wherever ideas of nationhood and national pride are disputed. Whether the ostensible topic is statues, flags, anthems or footballers taking the knee, the roots of the disagreement go back to the fact that Britain was once the world's foremost imperial power. As Satnam himself says, if Britain were a patient having therapy, empire would be the subject it would least want to talk about, and for that very reason, the most important thing to delve into. So that's why we brought Satnam to the virtual studio to talk about it. Empireland is a seriously impressive piece of scholarship that manages to cover an enormous subject, big in time and space. Britain colonised a quarter of the surface of the world at one point, and it does it with a lightness of narrative touch and a necessary dose of the dry and poignant humour that readers might know from his other writing. I'm thinking in particular of The Boy with the Top Knot, Satnam's 2009 memoir of growing up in Wolverhampton, and his childhood defined by the traditional values and orthodox culture of rural Punjabi Sikh parents. That's an excellent book too, which I would recommend alongside Empire Land. 
In fact, they complement one another, because the subtlety and originality of Satnam's view on history derives from his willingness to put himself and his immigrant story at the heart of the journey. Anyway, you don't need to hear this from me. Let's hear it from him. I started by asking about the sheer scale of the task. How do you distill the unfathomable vastness of what empire means for modern Britain into some kind of manageable narrative? I mean, I began it thinking I couldn't do it, but I felt like that at the beginning of every writing project I've ever done. You know, with my novel, I was like, oh, that's beyond me. A memoir at the age of 30 definitely felt beyond me. <laughs> that, I find that quite reassuring as someone who's in the early stages of writing a book and sometimes confront this phenomenon of the sort of the roller coaster of thinking, uh, at some stage, is this even going to be any good? Who on earth with their right mind would actually read this stuff? Um, so now that makes me think you're going to write a good book. I think that feeling of feeling intimidated, but then gradually conquering it is, is what I love about writing. And uh, the people who don't feel that are the ones who write crap books, I think. I hope that's true. <laughs> that, but isn't, isn't that a sort of a psychological thing that we, some of us who have self-doubt believe in life generally? It's something that always comes across to me in politics, where I think you know, there, there are people who, who seem so phenomenally endowed with a lack of self-doubt. Uh, and or in actually in music in any industry there's you think it, that at some point that's a gift isn't it you can just or probably we've got a prime minister who is just seems to be so shameless and driven that that it's a superpower in a way and those of us who are constantly questioning and thinking oh there is another side to that or i can see the opposite argument having just made the argument i've made it's just limiting and i think the opposite i mean i think it's a real privilege to go from you know to confront that doubt because you get the satisfaction of the journey I always think people like David Cameron and Boris Johnson are have it bad because unless they're prime minister, they feel like they failed. But I feel like I made it when I got into the into the grammar school in Wolverhampton. You know, that was the most exciting thing that ever happened to me, you know, and I've enjoyed every step of my life because I didn't expect any of it. And you still get a bit of a kick when you see your byline in a newspaper and you think, hey, that's me. Oh, God, or yeah. in fact, when I still when I still get the emails from my parents saying, oh, I enjoyed your article in the newspaper this week. It's like, I know you have to say that. In fact, now I'll be really <laughs> upset if I ever don't get that email because you know, if you say it about every single one, what happens to the one you didn't like? Yeah, no, it's, it's great. But also, I mean, another thing I feel very lucky about is that my family don't read anything I write or very little. My dad's illiterate. And, and the boy and the boy with the top knot that was not uh, poured over by the extended family. I made my immediate family read it because I just didn't want anything to appear without their permission. But the extended family, I, I, I'm, I've got a very big one. I've got 54 first cousins. But one of them turned up at Christmas last year and said, I've got a bone to pick with you. I was like, wow, delayed, <laughs> delayed effect of reading the book 10 years later. But he still hadn't read the book. The bone he was picking was about the TV adaptation. <laughs> I was like, mate, uh, you should read the book because it doesn't say that. <laughs> but that's that's the way my family works. They don't really read what I write. I want to come back to Empire Land and the, what you're talking about, the journey, because the process of arguing with yourself almost, one of the things I felt reading the book was it finished angrier than it started, as if you'd sort of gone into it thinking, I'm going to be terribly even-handed here and I can see different sides of this and I'm not going to be judgmental of the people who are nostalgic about Empire or for whom it's an important part of their identity. Uh, and by the time I'd got to the end, I felt what you'd sort of worked through. You, it's almost as if you discovered a resentment that you didn't know you had. Is that was that is that a fair account of of the of the journey, or and was that something that you then consciously thought you'd recreate in the writing, or is that literally how it wrote itself out? Uh, that's how the narrative went, I guess. And 
it was all much worse than I expected, <laughs> you know, and the, the good things weren't as good as I expected. Um, but also something else I think maybe is contributing to your sense of that is that whilst I wrote the book, we had the beginning of a massive culture war around the subject of empire, I guess begun by Black Lives Matter and then extended by a right wing faction of the Conservative Party. So it's quite odd. I mean, I began writing the book. It was such an esoteric subject. I remember doing a reading halfway through it of the book and my friends just being utterly confused about what it was. They were like, is this a memoir? Is it a history book? Or you're not a historian. By the end, my esoteric concerns are like international obsessions, right? It's one of the biggest stories in the world now, colonialism, suddenly, out of nowhere. It inserted itself into a, a current discourse in a way that is, to me, feels totally ahistorical. It seems almost entirely about the way we are feeling about ourselves now and also the way, as you say, in particular, part of the Conservative Party wants to uh, energise a certain group of people's sense of of self-confidence as a nation that is weirdly detached from any narrative detailed account of the things we're actually talking about. Totally. I mean, I, I mean I've, I'm thinking about this quite hard because I'm making a documentary like why have the conservatives picked up picked up picked up on this and people have various theories and one is that you know brexit worked out for them they demonized the eu and they've learned how that can really pay off in terms of elections so they need a new enemy and the new enemy is woke people like me and people who attack british history people who aren't proud of british history it's a totally insane idea being proud of 500 years of history because that covers a lot of events. You know, what do you mean? Do you mean abolition? Do you mean slavery? Do you mean Lenny Henry? You mean, what What do you mean? Do you mean Windrush? I mean, it's it's utterly inane thing to say, to say we need to be proud of British history. But that is what the right wing of the Conservative Party goes around saying now. One of the interesting things, well, the many interesting things in the book, though, is the extent to which you tease out the way the events uh, and the behaviour of a lot of the imperialists and a lot of the colonial projects as they were unfolding were way more controversial in real time than their defenders now give them credit for. And this is, again, something I find interesting. It was much more contested as it was happening uh, than it is in this kind of aspic, uh, memorialised account, which in a way sort of gives hope to those of us who think we could have a slightly more rational appraisal of it, because you say, well, all you need to do is find the contemporary accounts of the, the, the anti-imperialists who weren't, in quotes, woke leftists at the start of the 21st century, but were actually sort of moralising people in the late 19th century. Totally, yeah. And I was surprised by that, that. I mean, the common thing people say is you shouldn't judge the past by moral, ethical standards. But if you look at the list of people who complained about the excesses of imperialism, it's a really amazing list. Not only George Orwell, um, but people like Richard Cobden, even Queen Victoria sometimes was like, you know what? You shouldn't have done that to that African, <laughs> she said to like various generals. And um, I mean, I argue in the book that anti-imperialism and actually anti-racism is, is a real legacy of empire, you know, it was fought. And arguably abolition created the model for loads of um, social justice campaigns that followed from the suffragettes to trade unionism and so on. And I think we need to be proud of that and, uh, and, uh, and see that as much of an imperial legacy as the, as the colonial statues. I mean, the statues are an interesting one, aren't they? Because at what point do you recognise that something in a landscape you know, it has a there's a sort of a statute of limitations in terms of ancient atrocity. So, you know, 
uh, the statue of Cromwell in the grounds of Parliament, I think, is always quite an interesting example here, where it's it's pretty easy if you're Irish Catholic, for example, to think there are excellent reasons why you shouldn't want to celebrate the legacy of Oliver Cromwell. But somehow enough water has flowed under the bridge that that's not a live issue in the way that, you know, Jan Smuts or you know any of the other people along Whitehall might be. Yeah, I mean, I we statues was the prism through which this whole argument emerged initially. I guess, in black, during Black Lives Matter, the protests. And I thought about doing a whole chapter on it and I, I got as far as three paragraphs and I was like, you know what? Compared to all the other imperial legacies like racism, multiculturalism, our wealth, it just didn't matter. I, don't, I generally don't notice statues. They're just street furniture. And I couldn't really care massively if they're kept up or if they're torn down. I like Robert Winder's idea that we should have this annual day where we pelt the statues we don't like with tomatoes. And then you can't be accused of dele- deleting his history. Everyone gets to feel good if they hate Robert Clive. And we can talk about more serious things. And I think the statue thing is a distraction, you know. And we need to move on from talking about empire entirely through the prism of street furniture. This idea of deleting history is an interesting one, though, isn't it? I did a podcast episode about nostalgia. And one of the things we learned about, I learned about that, is the extent to which people rely on nostalgia as... Uh, they call it like a bank of positive affect. You know, this idea that if you feel un- insecure or unhappy, you sort of delve into a, a memory bank and you get have a warm bath and feel good about yourself. And I think cultures do that generally. And so if you have a group of people who have, for whatever reason in this country, persuaded themselves that they had, you know, not just the sort of the finest hour uh, in, in the 1941, but going back, that empire was this great thing and that, that is an emblematic of what Britain can do in the world... Uh, even if you, in the most rational and even-handed way possible, try and demythologize it, they will feel it as an attack on themselves and a sort of a, a very profound emotional discomfort, which isn't the way you're trying to engage with. But it doesn't matter because they, that's how they feel it. And I don't know how you have a conversation that, that works around that. You've got your finger on the button of why this conversation is so toxic. It feels very personal to everyone, I guess, for the... The descendants of the colonized, like me, it feels very personal because I guess my ancestors were murdered when necessarily. To the colonizers, it feels very personal because they have, might have family who were actually quite nice, doing relatively nice things in Africa or whatever. But also, it's, it gets very vicious very quickly because it's about race. Because when you're talking about British Empire, you're talking about white people conquering brown people and t- sometimes enslaving them, sometimes committing genocides. And so it ends up being an argument about racism. And in this country, we have these circular arguments about racism. Throughout my life, we've just, it happens every three weeks. There's a race scandal. We have the same conversation or absence of a conversation. And we go back to where we started. And we never confront the source of all of this racial discontent, which is empire, I think. And that's what everything goes back to. The Stephen Lawrence inquiry, interestingly, had a similar conclusion to the Windrush inquiry. They both said, we need to teach empire in schools and it still never happens. Well, yeah, and the extraordinary thing, and again, this comes out very strongly in the book, is that part of the denial there is because even at its height, even when it was really had, had adopted quite explicit language of white supremacism, the imperial project also extolled itself as a kind of a transnational project. And, uh, you know, and so it's very interesting, for example, that 
the the original concept of the Little Englander, which we now I think tend to use also to mean the imperial nostalgist and the whole set of basically British or English nationalists. We bundled them all together. Actually, the Little Englander was once the opposite of an imperialist because the imperialists saw themselves as you know eliminating borders and being terribly internationalist. So there is this separate mythology of the kind of civic internationalist idea of British Empire, which not only isn't racist, but it's actually almost the opposite of racism. Now, that sounds probably kind of mad and paradoxical to some people, but th- th- there are clearly a lot of people who really think that that's what empire meant. Yeah, I think you you hear that in the arguments about Brexit. You know, when when uh, Priti Patel talks, us, talks about us being a great trading nation, right? And this idea that all the white former nations of empire can get together. That idea was common throughout empire too. And so these ideas have have kept going. But you talk about the white supremacy initially when you started talking about that. And it was much bigger than I even realised when I was writing the book. I mean, I was reading some stuff in The Guardian around the time of the mutiny. And The Guardian published an editorial saying, obviously, we are superior to Indians and we need to rule India. And this was The Guardian. But that was how popular white supremacy was so now you get certain historians or wannabe historians or people who pretend they're historians like uh, Nigel Bigger saying you know empire wasn't racist and it's like even the Guardian absorbed that idea you know it was such I think the people of that time would be shocked that their opinions aren't being conveyed accurately today you know, when we think of white supremacism, we think about this sort of pseudoscience of race and the legacy of the 20s and the 30s and obviously the, the Second World War. Um, but you know, I think we sort of underestimate, or certainly I underestimated, the way that in itself grew out of a, a, an earlier phase, which was also basically about Christianity and about bringing civilization to heathens and to people who, who you know, who are godless. And that fusion, again, means that the... the yeah, there's a, there are a whole set of kind of very profound moral premises about what is the duty of the white man to go out into the world and bring righteousness to the dark man and woman uh, that are much deeper in the in the English psyche than I think even the people who recognise that racism was involved will recognise, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the things that people struggle with is the fact that it wasn't always like that. I mean, empire was... Th- often the opposite at other stages. So there was a time where British people went to India and happily married Indian women and they were even given money by the East India Company to get married for their weddings and so on. But then it became utter taboo in the Victorian age when it became possible for white women to travel to India and be the partners of these men. It became totally taboo to to have mixed race relationships. So empire was entirely different things at different times. And what I love about the the religious thing is what has happened now, because now the most passionate Christians in the world are in the former colonies. And so the Africans, Africans are coming to Britain with a missionary sense, trying to convert, you know, the white people who converted them. And that's really complicated. And a lot of the uh, evangelical churches, you know, if they're growing at all uh, in, in the UK, it'll be because of inward migration. Uh, and I mean, again, that that's one of the, I think, the things that I find so fascinating about the, the book, about your, about your take on this, is there's this feedback loop where ideas of what it meant to be empire got exported and then iterations that were picked up in the colonies uh, and then brought back and... Britain sort of in the 60s, 70s and 80s was often held up to a standard of Britishness that its imperial subjects believed in and that its own people weren't sort of upholding or weren't obeying, if you see what I mean. 
Absolutely. And you know what? I mean, there's many books written about working class attitudes towards empire. You know, we, we in my book, I tend to focus on the elite and the governing elite. But actually, there's an argument to be made that the working classes either didn't know about empire or really didn't care. And there's an argument to say that actually they were treated almost as bad, badly as some of the colonized. And that just conveys the incredible complexity of what was going on when Britain colonized a quarter of the planet. I mean, even in parts of India, empire was different in one town to a town 10, 10 miles away, you know. So when you generalize about empire, you're generalizing across time, but also geography. That class thing is so interesting. I mean, you never, you never, you're never very far away from a discussion about class when you talk about uh, British <laughs> society. But yeah, the, the, the way in which, you know, empire at its height, again, also provided this apparatus for the employment of a kind of semi-educated, mediocre official class. Uh, again, I'm sorry to just keep going on about how much I, I like the book. I'll stop in a minute, but I'm sure you don't really mind me saying that. But, yeah. <laughs> but one of the things that I think one of the passages I sort of underlined the hardest in, in pencil, of course, was, you know, where you make this point that the, the, sort of the public school system evolved absolutely in sync with empire because you needed to generate a kind of physically capable intellectually incurious group of administrators who could go out and just uphold a, a loose sense of cultural greatness about what it was to be Britain. With, and just basically they, those people then could have very lucrative jobs, could essentially plunder and do well for themselves. Uh, and that uh, sort of stratum in society was absolutely central to you know, the British social hierarchy and then it disappeared and no one talks about where it went or what, how, how they felt about it or, or how they were supposed to be reintegrated into Britain. Yeah, and you see that today. I guess you're talking about the distrust of cleverness and how it was a guy called First who ran the uh, colonial service and uh, had a preference for Oxbridge graduates who had third class degrees. He didn't want people with first class degrees because they think too much, you know, and you want men who just kind of carry things out, carry out orders without analysing it too much. And you see that absolutely today. I mean, one of the criticisms of Keir Starmer is that he's too, too clever, right? I remember David Willett's been called two brains and he said himself that was one of the things that killed his career. He was seen as too clever, you know? And there's an idea, very popular in Britain, that you need people who do things. You don't want people who just analyse things. And this is Boris Johnson's main attack on the Labour Party is that they're intellectuals. Yeah, that you shouldn't think. Yeah, you shouldn't think too hard, uh, and also you shouldn't be seen to be striving. Oh yes, yes. That I think is a fascinating thing. I don't know whether there's a connection with empire here, but it's certainly a phenomenon of that ruling class that it ought to appear to be effortless. And there is a sort of, you know, a sort of sundowners at five p.m. and you know, gin and tonics in the Raj vibe around that although i couldn't draw the line directly between that attitude and empire maybe you can help me now you're talking about effortless superiority and actually it's an italian idea i looked into this it began it's, i can't say italian word. it's something like spirizia or something and one of the first proponents of it was sir philip sydney the poet who apparently as he lay dying dictated a poem um which was a, considered to be the ultimate uh, demonstration of effortless superiority but you see that throughout society now so Boris Johnson looking a mess, you know. You know Boris Johnson, he's fluent in probably four languages, but when he speaks French, which he's very fluent in, he, he puts on this franglais accent because he doesn't want to look like he's tried. He doesn't want to look like an intellectual. And it's that celebration of people achieving things with seemingly no effort. And I think Boris Johnson completely epitomises that. There is a kind of 
inferiority superiority complex duality that goes on in that whole aspect of of British political culture uh, and and more widely. This was very strong, I think, in Brexit, that this idea that somehow we were both too good for the Europeans uh, and need to, could strike out on their own. And, and it was all been terribly humiliating that we'd had to go into the European project in the first place. But also there was something kind of slick and fancy about their foreign ways and they had their fancy food. And there was a kind of anxiety that continentalism was more sophisticated than Britain, but also that in our non-sophistication, we'd understood some more fundamental truth that were basically better than them. And it's, it's, it's terribly complex. Absolutely. I think I think that goes all, all the way back to the way in which empire happened. I mean, the, the famous line about empire having been conceived in absence of mind, because it wasn't like the Roman Empire where there was a mission and there was a kind of, uh, you know, a document that declared what Britain wanted to do. It almost, almost happened by accident. But it was still the biggest empire in human history. So that absolutely encapsulates that idea of achieving great things without even setting out to do it. Whereas the Europeans, you know, they they have to set out to do things and they're much more anxious about themselves. And I guess it comes down to superiority, doesn't it? We have an innate sense that we're better than everyone else. And that's maybe why we struggled with being part of the EU. That felt too much like being colonised to us given we colonised everyone else. It certainly was described in those terms in a way that was sort of frankly absurd. But the idea, I mean, I spoke at a Brexit event where someone on the panel, a young leaver on the panel sort of said, well, I've only ever grown up under sort of as part of a Brussels empire. Uh, And actually an elderly uh, Indian guy in the audience very politely said, "Uh, I live through partition and I'm going to tell you that I, I don't think you actually have grown up as a, in a colony. I don't think you know what that means. Uh, and the, the person on the panel really pushed back and said, no, no, I do. I've never had freedom because I've lived on... I was just stunned. Yeah, you heard that a lot. I mean, you heard Nigel Farage in his victory speech famously saying, we've achieved this without a shot being fired. I mean, using the language of independence, of colonial independence for Brexit. And it's... I mean, Fintan O'Toole is very good on this, who argues that, you know, basically, because we were the British Empire, we see everything through the prism of empire. You're either colonizer or you're the colonized. Also, as if I understand Finton's argument, the way you exonerate yourself from responsibility for the awesome power of having ruled so much of the world is to venerate all your failures and defeats and to develop this cult of the hapless dilettante. It's why the obsession with Gareth Southgate's 1996 yes. penalty or, you know, why, 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 in a way, why Tim Henman will always, in a way, be more celebrated than Andy Murray in some weird way because somehow it's terribly important for us to cling to the sense of failed amateurism because that's the baked in is, is not wanting to confront what the, the true swagger and arrogance of having colonised, you know, so much of the world would really say about ourselves. Yes, I think he calls it heroic failure, doesn't it? And why do we obsess about Captain Scott, you know, and all these terrible battles where hundreds of thousands of men died in World War One? Why do we dwell on that rather than our victories? And yeah, I think it's uh, probably because if we do face up to the fact that we colonised a quarter of the planet, that's quite something to get your head around. I and mean, if Britain was a country in therapy, that would be a hard thing to confront. <laughs> 
know, that would be the thing you'd want to focus on. And it's probably the thing you, we would want to talk about least. It's interesting, isn't it? You say, well, first of all, there's so many things I want to pick up there. One is the use of the pronoun we, which we've done, but we're not talking about, you know, you and me by definition, if we're saying other people are doing this. And I'm second generation British, like you. I mean, it's a very different background. But one of the things I've identified with, you know, in, in a lot of what you've written is, you know, you, you describe the walls between the life that your first generation immigrant parents have and the one that you choose and construct for yourself as second generation uh, and a set of conscious choices you are therefore making about assembling your own Britain that you can feel you, you can be part of. And then it's not necessarily obvious to me how much of a duty I or you or anyone has to the other Britain that isn't the one that you've constructed for yourself that has mm. was there before. <laughs> Uh, you know, for you to say, well, okay, my one's kind of in my head and I can't expect anyone else to share it. So do I just really have to maybe just be a little bit more kind of, I don't know what, deferential, I suppose is the word, to the fact that there was this other Britain there before uh, that, you know, that wasn't made up by me in my head. Yeah, I mean, the, the pronoun we is really interesting because I'm not a historian. I gave the book to four historians to read and they all said the same thing. They were like, never use the word we. The first thing you get told, apparently if you do an undergraduate degree in history, is don't use we. It's not we. It's not you. Be more detached. But I actually wanted to keep it because that's how I talk, firstly. And I'm not a historian. I don't want to be a historian. And secondly, this is, isn't this the big issue with empire? The fact is, you know, we are a multicultural nation because we had a multicultural empire. And I think it's a powerful thing for a brown person to say we. I think too often when you when we talk about empire, it becomes an argument between the colonized, the descendants of the colonized and descendants of the colonizers. And if you use the word we, it completely breaks that down. You know, it's also generally how I feel, partly because as a Sikh, Sikhs were massively involved in empire. We took the side of the British in the mutiny. We fought in both world wars. We took advantage of immigrating to Africa and then to Britain. So it does feel like we, British, I mean, Thinking about the tens of thousands of Sikhs who died, they didn't die for Britain, they died for empire. So I find it fine to say we. What's your, actually, I don't know your background. So you're second generation. Yeah, so my parents uh, emigrated from South Africa uh, in 1969, 1970. Uh, and so I was born not long after that in the early 70s. Uh, but their parents were Jewish from Lithuania. So it's sort of cross continents. Um, and... Uh, I was just thinking about this actually for something else that I'm writing uh, uh, this today actually this weird thing sense where because you know if you have a, if you have parents who are uh, white and have English as a first language and you grow up in multicultural London and middle class you know my dad's doctor uh, very Jewish middle class sort of milieu in most respects I think I actually didn't even realise they were immigrants for a long time and I didn't you know apart from my fact obviously I knew that there was this other country that they called home and, and we didn't have any family living in the UK. And there, there was a kind of a more subtle foreignness about us because my parents didn't know anything about actually the sort of the, the, the finer shades of British culture, how to navigate the class system, what pubs were really for, football, all that sort of stuff. They, I think I, it took me quite a long time to realise actually what it meant to be first generation and how, and second generation and, and how, as I say, there was a, 
a construction of a personal notion of Britishness that was very important to me. And I think that's why I found myself disproportionately upset by Brexit, because it seemed like such a repudiation of of a, of a very patriotic idea that I had of what the country was that I was living in. Uh, and then to, to doubly be told, well, first of all, that's now in the bin. And by the way, it's not patriotic at all. Uh, you know, I think went very deep. I think actually the thing I'd pick up on from what you just said is actually South Africa. Because for me, that history is a highly complicating factor because I knew nothing about, I knew nothing about anything historical really, but I knew even less than nothing about South Africa. I spent three weeks researching the history of Jan Smuts, who you've mentioned already, because his portrait was going to be torn down from my college walls in Cambridge. And I thought, oh, this is a, a way for me to talk about imperialism in South Africa. And I thought South Africa was literally a question of black and white, given apartheid, and what I knew of South Africa in the 1980s. The history of empire in South Africa is so confusing. I mean, it's hard to tell. It's, it's not like there were a bunch of people who wanted to introduce apartheid and a bunch of people who didn't. There were people who wanted to introduce degrees of apartheid. And Jan Smuts was actually against the radicals who wanted to introduce really severe apartheid. And so when it comes to someone saying, hey, you want to tear down that picture of Jan Smuts on the college war? It's not that simple, is it? I don't think he's straightforwardly a bad man or a good man. It's, it's bloody complicated. When you get to 1994 and the end of apartheid, I mean, no one was seriously arguing that you should not kind of rename all these things in South Africa that were named after basically Nazis, you know. Yeah. Favut and Malan and these people. It wasn't really an argument about retaining the memory of those people. It was morally imperative. Kind of gives us a little bit, bit of a way on to, I can't say this word in German, but I'm going to try. Uh, Nor can uh, I. Uh, really, I'll go first then. Vergangenheit Saufarbeitung. Is that right? Pretty good attempt, yeah. I don't. I can't correct you because I can't pronounce it either. Okay. Uh, but do you want to say? Do you want to, do you want to tell everyone listening to this podcast what it is, though? It's working off the past, and it's uh, used to describe the way Germans systematically face up to their history in World War Two. You know, through their art, through their politics, through their street furniture, and it's a systematic, almost daily meditation for them. And they're brilliant at it. Arguably, they aren't so good at doing the same with their own colonial history. I mean, I can't really speak for Germany or Germans. I mean, I know lots of German <laughs> people, but there isn't a particularly strong lobby suggesting anything else to the extent that, you know, at least sort of Nazism is, is so unequivocally the evil of the 20th century that in a way you didn't have a choice. I've just been reading a very interesting book about what, went wrong in the transition to liberal democracy in Eastern Europe. It looks at that a little bit, you know, in places like Hungary and Poland, where a kind of reactionary illiberalism has really rejected the idea that it was the end of history and that, you know, everyone was just going to join one big European happy family. And one of the problems you have there is that it was almost sort of exported German idea that all nationalism is wicked and it leads to a certain destination one way or another slowly or quickly you tend towards this kind of exclusive aggressive nationalism that alienates minorities and you know it, we, we you know we know it, it has an unhappy ending but because a lot of these former communist countries a national and particularly an ethnic national idea of who they were who were poles who were hungarians was so important in casting off communism that they, they didn't want to throw away nationalism when they embraced liberalism uh, and you know, in a, in a way, I think something, there's a little bit of that confusion happening in the UK as well. This idea that 
you know, through that period, the you know, the nineties and the noughties, you know, this sense of the the total triumph of a liberal cosmopolitan internationalist culture, there was a sort of a moral certainty that nationalism was all angry, red-faced, egg on tie, grumpy old colonels who we could safely consign <laughs> to the dustbin of history, and were a bit surprised to discover that actually there was a whole new potential wave of resonance in nationalism uh, and just saying, but, but, but history, look at the Second World War, was an adequate rebuttal. Yeah, and uh, another interesting thing happening in Poland and Hungary and actually in America and India are culture wars around history. And, you know, I mean, you had Trump trying to introduce his patriotic education. You've got very similar culture wars happening in Poland and Hungary and in India too where the Hindu nationalists are trying to introduce, you know, their version of history with schools. So it's very useful to think of other countries when you reflect on the culture wars, which can seem like a particularly British thing. But I think it's an international thing, isn't it? It's an international desire to go back to something pure. Yeah, I sometimes worry that we've actually, uh, we've just imported a lot of American culture wars so that, that, again, that's actually something I really learned from from Empire Land. You know, there was, if I'm honest, when the the left in this country had taken up the cudgels on on the issue of slavery, for example, although I was sort of mindful of the history, there was a part of me that thought it's not the same as the American experience. You're not. There's a lot of language and slogans and sort of tropes that are being transplanted from a, a U.S. debate. They had the Civil War. They had the Confederacy. It's sort of it's not quite an effective transplant to make that part of our debate. And actually, Empire Land made me reconsider that. I thought, no, I've been really ignorant on that. Actually, <laughs> I do quite the extent to which, yes, obviously, it's not exactly the same, but the extent of how you know bollock deep we were in proper, full-on slavery culture, but just conveniently at a few thousand miles removed most of the time because it was in the Caribbean, is something I, I had I hadn't fully taken on board. Yeah, we, we had slaves in Britain, which is something people still try to deny to this day. And also, you know, what kept the cotton mills of the north going? It was cotton from slave-picked plantations, right? And it was, it was an international economy, wasn't it? I don't think you can separate the two. And there's a new book out, by um, which is number one in the New York Times uh, books list at the moment, about how slavery has created modern America. It's very much like Empire Land, but... Um, but for America. And he, at the end, makes the conclusion that you cannot understand American slavery without understanding colonialism and British empire because the two are inextricably linked. You've got to go to the ideas of the humanists where this racism emerged that allowed white people to send millions of people across the Atlantic without feeling bad about it. That's one of the things I find probably most philosophically challenging, you know, that I think about these things in politics is the simultaneity of the Enlightenment and all of this stuff happening, you know, that, yeah. you know, it's so that there's a kind of a glib argument uh, that you get uh, and was getting prevalent, I think, in, in the kind of the Remain side of the Brexit wars, that there was liberal Enlightenment on one side and the forces of, of darkness and reaction and superstition on the other side. Uh, and that therefore remain, you know, there's, there's this kind of a line that goes remain and Angela Merkel against you know, Brexit and Donald Trump and yeah, alternative for Deutschland. Um, but it doesn't quite work because no. you know, Rousseau was an Enlightenment philosopher who apps was instrumental in, in creating this kind of patronizing cult of the noble savage. And 
the all the Enlightenment. David Hume and all those lot, yeah. Well, Alex Renton's book, I mean, he's, he's written a book about how his aristocratic Scottish family were deep into slavery. Um, the thing he's most shocked at is that all these incredibly liberal Scottish politicians were, you know, writing daily letters to their slave plantations. And it also comes across in the history in America with Jefferson. I mean, who's owned slaves, arguably impregnated one slave, you know, gave her five children. And yet this is seen as a... Yeah, I'm, I'm very torn on that because, well, obviously I'm not torn on the, the morality, but I'm pretty clear where I stand on. <laughs> Sorry, let's just be absolutely clear what, I, what I'm not torn on. What I mean is what I find difficult to reinterpret now is a residual intellectual attachment to the American project in many respects. I've always been quite an America file politically. And if you really want to like look in the face of the Gorgon, that is the rank hypocrisy of the... A Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence when you did then had slavery for the next 150 years. Um, you know, what is it that the sort of pro-Biden America is defending against the Trump America when those hypocrisies and the, and the genocide of the indigenous people of North America is so baked in? And I don't really, and that's a big question. What's the answer, Salam? It's a big question. I mean, I, I guess it's maybe too big for me, but we like, I think we like to look down on America in general. We look at America and think they are much more screwed up about race than we are. You can sense it in every news bulletin. But I think they are way ahead of us. There's actually a, a proper conversation happening about reparations. They're never going to pay them, but they're having a conversation. Biden's talked about it. Kamala Harris has talked about it. But in Britain, I think we, we struggle to accept that racism even exists. I think America has accepted racism exists. Whereas over here... We often have people bristling at the idea that racism even happens because we, we defeated the Nazis, we abolished slavery, we are beyond racism. That's our national narrative. I, I certainly agree that's true with regard to this idea that we are the... And that this is why Churchill is so difficult because, you know, in the kind of the, the crudest sort of moral geometry of the 20th century, Churchill is the opposite of Hitler, therefore Britain is the opposite of fascism, therefore we can't ever be that. Um, uh, and you know, self-evidently, anyone who knows much about what he actually believed and the history, we know that's not really true. Where does that leave room for at least recognition of genuine progress? I think a lot of the people, I agree with you, but I think a lot of people who say, "Oh, come on, stop going on about the racism thing." What they what they mean, if I'm being generous, is look, I remember the black and white minstrel show from the 70s. Uh, you know, I remember how racist it was until recently. You know, and 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 you know, there's huge numbers of of, of mixed race couples uh, and marriages and children in the UK. It, it's so much better, and actually, I think a lot in a lot of respects, probably better than a lot of continental European countries in terms of yeah, you know, the acceptance of of uh, black uh, minority players in the football team. All these things. There are yeah, you know, there is no perfect society, but there are metrics on which Britain might not come out of an international audit on who's really racist as badly as some people on the left think. I don't know, is that, am I being too kind? No, I agree with you, but I think there's two separate things there. There's the way in which race works in political argument and in politics, and there's society. I think society is getting more and more progressive, literally getting more di racially diverse. I mean, there's some towns in Britain that are already, you know, majority minority. I think the whole of the country could be 40%. BAME within our life. Yeah, and the cabinet. I mean, right? there's a very, so, very diverse cabinet. Yeah, that's all changing. But yet, 
you look at the race report, that's still quite Manichaean, black and white, cultural war, denial of racism crap. You know what I mean? I think it's like a, it's a last attempt by this, uh, by old white men, frankly, to have their say. But society is changing anyway. I agree with you. I think things are going to get better and they are getting better. To what extent is some of the more reactionary stuff or the denial, just the, the, the kind of the huge dyspeptic burp of a generation that just couldn't digest modernity and, and, and ultimately it's going to have to go down and it might not look be pretty when some of it comes out, but mm. you know, sort of in the gaseous way. That's exactly where it is. I'm increasingly convinced of this. There was a survey done by YouGov the other day which found that 75% of British people think it's a good idea to teach children about colonialism and British Empire and slavery. 75%. That's really fucking yeah. high. That, I don't know yeah, if well. I've already done it, but, I think. Um, so, you know, the... And uh, regardless of what the race report says, and also the same thing happened with the, with the knee, in that there was a lot of politicians saying, this is disgusting, we shouldn't take the knee, blah, blah, blah. As soon as there's a football tournament, Boris is like, don't boo them. It's fine to take the knee. And actually, at the last England match, I noticed more people were applauding than booing. And I, I think that's, you've got the gap there between the, the ideologues and reality and society. I mean, that kind of leads me to one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about in terms of the interaction between the, the personal and the political. Because one of the things you say in the book is that whether it was at the, as, at the inception or by the time you got to the end, that you felt this compulsion to decolonize the mind, your own mind, you know, the, 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 to sort of, or sort of declutter a lot of the cultural things that you'd realised you'd been carrying through this process. And I suppose the first question is how successfully you feel you did that? Yeah, I'm, well, I'm intrigued to talk to you about it because you're writing, I think, a similar thing where you're trying to connect politics to yourself. And actually, it's a very powerful thing. I used to really resist it because working at the FT for 10 years, you were not encouraged to write about yourself. Quite the opposite. It was seen as a weak thing to do. But I've realised over the last 10 years, that actually, it's a very powerful thing to do because it's a way to carry people on your emotional journey, you know, which is why your piece was so powerful, the one you wrote. Hopefully, your book is going to be an extension of. If you read that piece, there'll be familiar material, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it was a really amazing piece. I bet you had an incredible response to it, didn't you? Uh, yeah, enough that I now have to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. If you take something as complicated as, in my first book, Schizophrenia, something people don't really want to talk about, or British Empire, something else people struggle to understand, and give them a personal reason to care, it's a very powerful thing. It can really change stuff. But what I'm, I suppose what I'm trying to get at is, okay, I'm thinking, I was thinking about this with regards again to myself then. Something I think in, in terms of, okay, it's race and unconscious bias. It's something I always think about is the extent to which, when I think about all the movies I saw in the 80s, if I just, my brother and I would just go to the cinema, American films in particular, how often uh, black men were portrayed as criminals in those films, right? You know, uh, and, hmm. and it, how, or just as a threat of violence associated with um, black men. And the unlikelihood, therefore, that that image hasn't burnt its way into an unconscious part of my mind that's going to make me, that I have to have really work to unpick those neural pathways. Uh, and with regard to empire, equivalently, I was thinking, 
you know, uh, the man who would be king, Zulu. I remember, you know, being off school one day, pretending to be ill and watching rubbish daytime telly and catching the four feathers. I don't know if you've seen this film. You know, these, these, mm. you know, these epic movies that absolutely venerate the whole cult of empire in so many ways. And you know, that's what I mean by sort of decolonizing the mind, you know, like how do you worry that whether you like it or not, you know, you're carrying around a, a whole set of cultural reference points in your brain that make a dispassionate understanding of empire you know, that much harder. Yeah, it's hard, I guess. How, and how far do you go? I mean, I've been I've had an argument this week with an academic who's written a paper about my writing saying. In short, that my writing is white supremacist. <laughs> And it was quoted in The Guardian. So I felt like I had to say something about it. And I can see why an academic, a, a literary critic could argue it, argue the case, because I'm writing in a, in a Western form, the memoir, for a Western audience. But then you could say, look, anyone who writes in English is white supremacist. I mean, how far are you going to take this? I would say you need to look at my writing as a whole, me as a whole, as a person, and look at the work I've done with anti-racism and actually maybe think of the multiple reasons why I cut my hair, not just race. And it can be very reductive. And I think the phrase decolonization is really unhelpful, um, mainly because it gives bad faith actors um, the idea that we're trying to delete things, you know, and that is not for me what decolonization is about with relation to myself or the curriculum. For me, it's about widening my mind and widening the curriculum. You know, you can read Zadie Smith and Jane Austen at the same time. It's not about deleting Jane Austen with Zadie Smith. I'm slightly mystified by the original allegation there. Was the charge that you had by narrating things from the point of view of someone who recognised some of the inevitability of what happened, you had adopted premises that had been inserted into your head by the imperialists and therefore had adopted had become essentially their pu pu intellectual puppet is that the charge i don't sort of i gave up reading the paper because it was so annoying and he drove me mad but essentially the argument was look satanam describes cutting his hair i had a top knot and how that made him integrate into british society and made him successful therefore he's going along with white society he's showing that actually in order to make it you need to be less brown and actually, I cut my hair for a load of reasons. You know, it wasn't about integrating entirely. That was part of it. I wanted to be more British than my parents did. It was about the fact that I was the only one with a top knot in my family, you know, and I felt weird about the fact that I was a very shy kid. It's about the fact that my views of religion had changed. I still had faith. I just didn't think I needed long hair. So when a literary critic comes along and reduces it in the way literary critics do, says it's white supremacist, I found that really deeply offensive. And so... I started arguing with them on Twitter until I had enough. Yeah, <laughs> rarely solves much in my experience. But um... <laughs> no, I wish I hadn't started it. But it just shows, it goes to show you, academia, man, is in a parallel universe. Well, I worry sometimes uh, um, with academia, and you know, I know I very nearly had an academic career myself. Oh, thank God you dodged that bullet. Uh, I, have, I have beloved academics in my family, so I'll, I'll, <laughs> it's a hill I, I, I can defend. But I do worry, particularly in some of the humanities departments, there is a kind of it, they're a bit like the sort of pre-Reformation monasteries where you have, it's almost deliberately arcane or that these are the people who have the command of the kind of the high Latin and the, the sort of ordinary people don't really understand the scriptures. Um, and there's this kind of priestly caste that 
is the academics who, who get to interpret the culture and the rest of us just have to live it. And I, I think there is a danger there that they just totally remove themselves. Yeah. And for me, it's just a weird question of priorities. It's like you, if you want to write, write something anti-racist, of all the things to pick is like, a, go on, pick the brown author. You know, let's say he's a white supremacist. There's a lot of other t bloody targets. Also, you're focusing on a memoir, which is mainly about schizophrenia. And if the only message you're getting out of it is about bloody race and white, my white supremacy, I think you've got strange priorities. I'm sorry, I've gone off on one. But it was, it was repeated in The Guardian, which is why um, I got incensed. Yeah, let's move on from, but we're not that interesting. You know, um, people who don't clearly didn't understand the book. Um, what is interesting generally, though, is the, the people who are angry or worried about immigration. I think their point is at some point there is a kind of an idea of Britishness. And by definition, it evolves and changes and gets diluted. Doesn't have to be about the color of skin, doesn't have to be about complexion, but it changes. And therefore, something is lost. And it's what they remember. And it's very important to them. And I don't know how the sort of the liberal, you know, pro-immigration or you know, people like you and me who have nuanced views on this can even begin to to sort of accept that feeling of loss and describe it in a sympathetic way that says, how do we accommodate that? Particularly when a lot of people on the left will say, well, if you think that's a legitimate concern, you're basically on their side and a bit of a racist. And say, yeah. well, I get I do get their feeling of loss, and I don't know I don't know politically how to articulate that if you know, by saying, yes, it's a loss, you're suddenly rhyming with people who are racist and you've alienated yourself from the left. But if you deny that it's a loss, you're not being rational. Well, the problem is for me is that I don't see it as a loss. I think they've been sold a lie or they've not been told, told the truth, which is that brown people, immigrants are here for a reason, you know, in that they came as citizens of empire who, and being a citizen of empire made you a citizen of Britain. I don't, I don't think that's very well understood. But I didn't understand it until last year. And so I don't know how the man on the street's going to understand it. It's a complicated thing, isn't it? And we never acknowledge what we did. So how do you make people like that understand what is, at the end of the day, a fact? You know, people in the Windrush came as citizens. They didn't come here uninvited. How do you deal with people who don't understand that? I think all you can do is explain the facts again and again and again. If you read the Windrush report, it basically says, the answer is to teach civil servants the history <laughs> because no one, no one in the, in the department understood the history. That's how they could deport them. They didn't understand. They, they were British people when they came. Yeah. I mean, one thing that does follow on from that, you know, again, it comes back to where we started, which is, which is I felt that you entered the book in a kind of a spirit of, of moderation and centrism loosely. And by the end, you found that that, didn't really apply as a lens because there was just so much criminality and appallingness that had to just be confronted and that's not a centre ground position. Is there a middle way? Um, I would disagree that, I mean, I agree with you, that's the general vibe, but my ultimate conclusion is that you can't weigh up empire and come to an overall idea about whether it was good or bad. And that's the thing, you're right, it's all too heavy for you to, and too poisonous to come to a balanced like to be, to be able to kind of sort it out in a kind of a warm, lovely way. But what you can do is to say, look, let's stop talking about empire and its balance sheet idea. Stop talking about whether empire was good or bad. You know, just try to understand it. Hopefully that's what I'm trying to do in the book. I think it's OK to say, look, that genocide in Tasmania was bad. 
It's just when it comes to the all-encompassing conclusion, when you say empire was good or empire was bad, and I blame Niall Ferguson for, Ferguson for this, because this is the way we see British empire. This is the debate about whether it was good or bad. But we can break away from that. It is possible. You know, you can say, look, I am not engaging in that argument because it's too complicated. I think that's the only middle way and that's the only way we're going to end any of this. There is another dimension to this, which is also the idea that you know, when you think, when you're listing, when one lists the things that are bad about uh, empire or the, the problems with it, you know, the, the assumption is always that the victims were the colonised people. Um, and one of the things that you tease out well, I think, is the extent to which is how unhealthy it is for the colonizers as well. And that there is a, you know, as the sort of abuser power, um, England, Britain, the UK has its own traumas to work through. And that that's actually, in a way, it's almost OK for, for want of a better word, the sort of the white non-migrant population of Britain to see itself in many respects as a victim of empire. Is that overstating it? Totally. It's a very, it's like family therapy, I think. It's a very powerful thing for anyone in a family to face up to things they've done wrong. You know, it can be incredibly positive and life enhancing. And I think people often ask me, you know, do you hate Britain now that you've spent four years looking at the, all the terrible things? And actually, no, I've ended up feeling even more British, you know, because I understand that my ancestors were involved with Britain going way back. You know, and I think that facing up to the bad shit doesn't mean you have to hate your country. Actually, you care enough to find out. I think that's an act of love. You know, it's like marriage, marriage guidance. You know, just because you've discovered your partner has done some terrible things, it can actually make you stronger. The fact you've worked it through. Yeah. Is that too far? Have you, have you ever had marriage guidance? <laughs> no, um, but maybe maybe I'll go and get some just for the back of this podcast. Uh, I'm gonna look forward to explaining that to my wife. So I had this brilliant podcast, and we were talking about genocide, and it's something I think we need to work through in our relationship. You say, mm, did you commit a genocide? I didn't know about. <laughs> in the book, there is there are quite a lot of references to a sort of a psychoanalytic process, and actually, in your other writing, you've talked to yourself about having therapy, uh, and you're quite open about that. Um, can you psychoanalyze a whole nation? Would it actually help if we basically had kind of essentially because of compulsory national psychoanalysis to try and work this stuff through? Is that something that basically we need to undertake? I think we need it. But there's something in the British character that is, you know, allergic to any kind of self-analysis and therapy. But for me, what therapy did for me was that it helped me recognize my patterns of behavior and the way I respond to things. So that when I started responding to things in a cliched Satnam way, I could stop myself. And I think that's precisely what Britain needs to do because we do have circular patterns of behavior, especially when it comes to race and our history, denying it even happened or looking back at it in a dysfunctional way. And I think a therapy facing up to it would be incredibly beneficial for us. It's absolutely what we need. Well, yeah, it's that Freudian point that you make that you know, if you bury the trauma, the, the tendency is to rehearse it and repeat it in, in other ways in your life. Maybe I mean, there, there's an element there of the Brexit thing, isn't there, that somehow we felt the need to be the colonised power, the colonised sort of victim in a way that was sort of working through some unprocessed stuff we had about empire. Totally. There's all sorts of patterns. I mean, at the moment, it's hard to ignore the jingoism of the press you know, in relation to football, that jingoism began at the height of empire when the Daily Mail and Daily Express were set up, you know, to celebrate empire. You look at the way they reported about empire, the language, very similar 
to the way they talk about football nowadays. And there's all these patterns in British culture and society which we've never faced up to. I think a part, a big part of the problem is this particular government, unfortunately, that we have at the moment, in the most cynical way, has decided that there is a kind of a tactical electoral advantage in having the worst possible debate about this stuff. Yeah, it's not going to work out. I just think it's it's a gamble they're taking and there's no proof. Just because it worked out with Brexit I think doesn't mean it's going to work out with Empire. I mean, the thing is, I know these red wall areas that they're campaigning in or aiming at. They're trying to attract former Labour voters who are economically left-wing but socially conservative, right? Yeah, and that's broadly then. I mean, I don't know. I'm from Wolverhampton. I know these people. They are not like that. They don't have strong opinions on Empire. They don't mind if their kids get talked about it. They're not that exercised. I think a certain number of think tanks and politicians are very animated. And it's interesting that this government contains quite a few historians or people who th- fancy themselves as historians. Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Kwasi Kwarteng, who actually wrote an amazing book about empire, has not said a word about this culture war. I'd love to talk to him. You should get him on your podcast. That would be interesting. Kwasi, if you're listening, come on the podcast. <laughs> the uh, Oh, you said something that I really wanted to pick up there. Oh, yeah, no, it was Lee Anderson, MP. I mean, the guy, I think it's Lee Anderson, the MP who basically said, I'm boycotting England matches because they're taking the knee. But then they beat Germany and then you suddenly want to, like, go in studs up on, you know, Second World War mythology, but you can't because you disowned the England team because they took the knee <laughs> and now you're all terribly confused. It's like, what are you going to do? Yes, you know, they call that so wrong, that thing, you know. Exactly. Yeah, and like, look at Raheem. And the Raheem is like a microcosm of the whole thing. Demonised and then everyone loves him. You know what I mean? the black boy from Wembley scoring a goal a few hundred yards away from where he grew up. It's a beautiful story. And that's the thing. I think progressiveness and, you know, racial harmony are beautiful stories. They're positive. And I think ultimately that's what's going to sell more than this negative culture war of division. I thought it was very interesting, the Gareth Southgate, the, the that sort of open letter that he wrote to the country, essentially saying, come on, please support the England side. Um, and he didn't reference the taking the knee thing directly, but it seemed pretty clear that he was articulating a defence of that concept. And a lot of the response to that was, this is refreshing and new, and what he's describing is something that has been missing from politics, which it felt it had been missing from politics recently. But I also thought, I'm pretty sure that was a lot of the way we were very automatically thinking of modern Britain in the late 1990s. Actually, that was the way Boris Johnson was talking throughout He's London Merrillty, wasn't it? Yeah. Totally. He's just decided at the moment, he's gone along with this particular campaign. He wasn't like that not long ago. And that man can turn. So I can see this whole culture war dying out quite quickly, frankly. Hope so, anyway. So do I. And I'm, I, we're sort of bathing deep in positivity and optimism now because my, again, talking to you, I get the sense that I think that... Yeah, for want of a better word, the kind of cool Britannia modern or the 2012 Olympic opening ceremony idea we had of ourselves, it didn't just vaporise. That is still, I think, an entirely present and legitimate and actually probably more widespread intuitive understanding of what this country is than the current government would like us to think or gives us credit for. Totally. I mean, Britain is just increasingly brown, man. I mean, it might feel good at the moment for them, but... I just can't see it working out. Well, that's a good positive note, actually, probably to finish on. Um, 
and we've we've barely even started but then that's what happens when you have hundreds of years of history and the single biggest uh, culture war topic and something that touches on every aspect of every molecule of what it means to be british in the 21st century uh, we were clearly going to run out of time but luckily there is a brilliant book uh, called empire land uh, that i very strongly urge everyone listening to this to go and read um it's it's all in there and more um so that just leaves enough time for me to say Satnam Sangera thank you so much for being on the podcast I really enjoyed this conversation oh thanks for having me on and I cannot wait for your book man send it please finish it first can I write it <laughs> and then we'll have that conversation <laughs> but yes thank you uh, yeah and then we'll, we'll do it again you know we'll do it we'll do a live event oh that'd be amazing <laughs> thank you thanks man even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.